Welcome to Live Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Selena. In this episode, I talk to Michael Kim, the co-founder of the law firm Cobre and Kim. Michael and his partner, Stephen Cobre, started the law firm at Stephen's Apartment Kitchen in 2003 and grew it into a global law firm with 10 offices worldwide and over 300 employees. Michael and Stephen met when they both worked as assistant U.S. attorneys in Manhattan, working on a security case, which ultimately became the movie The Boiler Room. At the end of the movie, the FBI comes in, and that's usually when the prosecutors get involved, so Michael and Stephen were picking out what actors would play them, but unfortunately, there was never a sequel, so they decided to start a business together. Starting a law firm was actually not their first idea, and you'll hear about an unusual and fun business idea that they had before settling a law. Michael talks about why he decided to start the law firm, even though 99% of the people he talked to said it was a terrible idea, and what he has learned about setting and achieving goals, building authentic relationships, and how to make yourself happy. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. There's a lot that I want to ask you. And let's start with your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? So I, I was born in a place called Ulsan, Korea. Uh, it used to be a fairly small fishing town when I was born, which is 1970. Now it's evolved into really uh, modern. I think it's like the wealthiest city in Korea or something crazy like that. Yeah. But um, so I uh, basically lived mostly outside of Seoul when I was a little kid. So many of my memories from Korea are um, Ulsan, Busan, uh, which are these like seaside uh, cities or towns um, and uh, really rural, not super rural, but somewhat kind of um, uh, provincial type towns. And then towards the end of my time in Korea, I moved to Seoul uh, and Uh I was there for a little bit before we left uh, Korea. So... Uh Um, I actually speak Korean with uh, a regional accent, <laughs> and um, for the, my concept of what Korea was yeah. is in my mind is from that time, like 1970s regional Korea. Wow. Yeah. Well, how old were you when you left? Uh, so I was like seven or eight when I left Korea, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we then went to Costa Rica. Mm, I see. Wow. How was that transition like? Um, So it was shocking because uh, back then in Korea, um, it was a military dictatorship under General Park Chung-hee. That's right. And uh, everything was really strict in school. So Mm. like my class in Korea had like 100 kids. And um, I think there was like no heating in the school or something like that. Almost like when I describe it, people think it's like they imagine it like in black and white. Yeah. And I I kind of remember it in black and white. But um, and they would regularly just beat you if you did anything wrong. But they would bring you to the front of the classroom and beat you with a stick, the teacher would, while oh, everybody boy. watched you. Oh my gosh. And the, every classroom had this photograph of General Park Jung-hee. And, really? Yeah, in the front, like this massive photograph. And he had this habit of kind of taking a photo like slightly to the side yeah. so that his shoulders were a little bit turned and he would look down. So literally when you were being beaten and you looked up at the photograph, I remember, it looked like he was looking at you oh while you were being beaten. 
So that's scary. To go from that uh, environment to, I think my first day in Costa Rica, at the end of the day, they started playing salsa merengue music mm. over the loudspeaker, and all the little kids. Uh, like grabbed each other and started doing salsa merengue, which I <laughs> I just found like mind blowing. It's like being transported to a different planet. Wow! How did your parents decide to immigrate to Costa Rica? So we actually didn't immigrate. What happened was my dad uh, was working for a Korean company called Daewoo at the I time, see, I see. and he uh, kind of went overseas on an assignment. Mm. But he was uh, he would went to Dubai, mm-hmm. which at the time had almost nothing in it. Right. Uh, not like today. So it really didn't have schools even. So um, because uh, we wanted to live overseas, and also at the time, there was a fear that there was going to be another Korean War. And oh, my right. parents, who had both lived through the Korean War, That's right. were really paranoid about it. So in conjunction with the overseas posting, they thought it'd be good if my mom and I could also leave the country, at least temporarily. Yeah. And I have cousins in Costa Rica, so we went to live there while my dad worked in Dubai. Wow. So, and then we thought we were all going to go back to Korea, but eventually ended up not happening. And then you moved to the United States. Uh, how old were you? Um, so I was about 13 when I came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went from Costa Rica to Dubai. Yeah. And I lived in Dubai for a little bit. Oh, wow. Then, then I came to the U.S. So how did your childhood experience of like constantly moving to different places and having to adjust to new culture affect you when you, grew, when you were growing up? So um, a couple of things. I think first... It's common for people to say, oh, I had difficulties in childhood, so therefore I achieved a lot. Um, I actually am very grateful that my parents always took really good care of me, and I grew up basically middle class. Right. So I really felt like I had pretty much everything I needed. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't have like huge like luxury needs, and we didn't like do that many expensive things or anything, but I didn't really have any kind of actual hardship in mm-hmm. the sense of material hardship. Right, right. Um, but I was like incredibly irritated pretty much my entire childhood <laughs> because either I didn't know any of the kids. I moved every two years on average until I got to college. Wow. So either I didn't know everybody or I couldn't speak the language. Or I remember like I had these like funny clothes that my mom brought from Korea because she didn't want to spend money. So she just had like <laughs> cheap clothes from Korea sent over. And I was just like look completely crazy wearing yeah. like 70s Korean clothes, <laughs> not being able to speak the language. Because I spoke primarily Korean and then Spanish. Right. So especially I would say, um, you know, Costa Rica had some racism, but it wasn't like really virulent racism. Mm. It's more like slight xenophobia. I and see. Dubai didn't really have much because mostly you were with expats. But certainly when I came to the U.S., mm. uh, I think my first port of entry was Miami. I see. And uh, there were just all kinds of race issues wow. back then, as there still are today. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I would say, in terms of trying to fit in with new people and adjust and feeling like kind of uh, an outsider, that pretty much was the theme until I got to college. Wow. So tell me about your parents. Did they want you to be something particular job or career when you grew up how was their parenting style you know, this is probably anybody out there who's korean who's yeah. listening to this <laughs> will be extremely envious of the following which is my parents never pressured me to do anything really yeah. but they you became who most parents want you to be right? oh, i guess i don't know but um well i think i'm very grateful that they never they never pressure me to do anything and i think probably the reason they never pressure me to do anything is they themselves are not your typical kind of um, Korean who w- was from like a super educated class in Korea and then immigrated uh, and then 
you know, they ended up having hardship in the U.S. and wanting to kind of live out all of their fantasies of U.S. success by pressuring their kids to achieve new things. Right, right. So I'm not really a Korean-American, like you're you know, traditional, like, oh, we moved to the U.S. to live in the U.S. We just kind of ended up here. Right. I guess I, sort of a, like a 1.5 or mm-hmm. some hybrid. So my parents uh, are from like a very humble background. They're both from rural areas, mm-hmm. like really rural areas, mm-hmm. originally from a place called Kawando, which is where now the Olympics are. That's right. Yeah, but back yeah. then, it was like a really kind of pretty downtrodden area mm-hmm. of Korea. And then in their 20s, they moved to Busan independently mm-hmm. and met there. I see. My dad uh, was, uh, at the time he got married, a uh, nighttime boiler repairman at the local power plant. Interesting. And wow. my mom was a hairdresser wow. at the local market. Mm-hmm. So these are like very, very uh, plain blue collar people. Uh, eventually, through a whole series of lucky breaks, my dad got into some management, and that's how we ended up at Dewu. I see. But uh, because of that background, pretty much like anything I did mm-hmm. was going to be an achievement. Um, I see. So they <laughs> never really pressured me to do anything, and as long as I wasn't like going around doing anything bad, mm. they were just always like either praising me or just happy that you know I was doing something. Wow. Do you think your parents understand the level of success you've achieved? Um, well, I guess if I think they think I'm successful because in that generation of Koreans, yeah, um, having uh, like being in a legal profession is considered very successful or very prestigious. Uh, being like at the top of an organization is considered really important. Um, having a good income is considered important. So I think in their definition of success, I'm successful, and I think they're very happy with it. Right. Now, I think if you draw a Venn diagram between their definition of success and my definition of success, there's like a some overlap. Mm. So I think they see just their circle, mm-hmm. and then I really just see my circle. And so there's some common elements I think we both share, thinking, oh, both think, oh, this is successful but i think they think i'm successful but for reasons that are different from how i think i haven't really achieved sounds like you've actually gotten what you wanted but that i've at least like uh, chasing success and and kind of catching it but not completely yeah well so what is your definition of success um so i think it's evolved over time i've articulated differently throughout my life but once now i've kind of reached i guess my late 40s I realized I was actually saying the same thing the entire time with different words, which is to really be able to do what I want without other people messing with me. So (laughs) I think that's really how I define success. Pretty much what everybody wants, right? Yeah, deep down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's go back to your childhood. When you were growing up, did you have a childhood dream? Um, Well, I think uh, originally, um, I think uh, when I was in Korea, I didn't really have any sort of big, uh, career goals. Um, I think that uh, eventually, when I um, came to the U.S., I think I felt so uh, kind of ostracized by the Americans, at least the, the native nativist Americans, who, who uh, were very kind of uh, racist or very exclusionary. That I think uh, I really thought, you know, if I went into the U.S. military and I became a career military, that I would be really integrated with this country. So I, for a time, I was obsessed with uh, joining the U.S. military and having a career of it, which would have been a mistake to have a whole career in it. But that was probably one goal I had. Mm-hmm. Another time in my life, I actually, um, that transmuted to uh, wanting to be in foreign service 
or in the, uh, the intelligence services and traveling the world and things of that sort. But um, I think eventually I really just settled on law, probably freshman year in college. I see. And, and, uh, and I've really had that as my primary interest since then. How did that come about? How did you first develop an interest in law? So kind of like a transmutation of why I wanted to be a career soldier and eventually maybe like a career CIA or State Department official, mm-hmm. which is feeling like integrated with the U.S. And even though we didn't really go through that much hardship, um, I think that uh, the, um, the whole process of immigration made me really feel like uh, I really wanted to get sort of uh, insight into how the U.S. legal system worked and insight into really how to really be an insider right. <laughs> in the U.S., yeah. So, you know, there are little things like my mom used to work at a laundromat when we first mm-hmm. uh, moved here as a worker. We didn't own one. And uh, the customers are constantly abusing her and like, yeah. like saying racist things to her and she'd get really upset. Right. And just seeing things like that just kind of like made me feel like, oh, I really, sh- really want to have stability and a sense of um, being like part of the mainstream so that I'm not looked down upon. So I thought, well, law is really going to get me that. So I wasn't like academically interested in law. I thought mm-hmm. it would be. Uh, something that would kind of give me that insider status and knowledge of how to get things done. But it turned out I actually do like the law yeah. intellectually, and it also let me kind of travel internationally, which is you know what I realized my true deep interest was. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like your desire to be integrated or accepted or become an insider in this country really drove you to um, this profession. And yeah, also initially, you, that's right. And also you serve, you did serve in the military, yeah, right? Just yeah, hopefully, just thankfully not as a career. Yeah. <laughs> How was that like? Uh, I really uh, enjoyed it, actually. Yeah. Um, I really, I was in the U.S. Army. Uh, mm-hmm. I was an infantry enlisted in an officer mm-hmm. um, and uh, really made really great friends. And, um, you know, I think I really enjoy the feeling of uh, challenge and uh, physical activity. So it, it got me all that. Yeah. Um, I know you had different business ideas before co-founding uh, this law firm. Um, can you share with us what ideas you had? Um, yeah, so I, we really, Steve Cobry and I, the other co-founder, we really just love business. Mm-hmm. And um, initially, one of the ideas that um, we explored was uh, diapers for dogs. <laughs> so we'd walk around and we'd see like all these dogs basically pooping in the street and people having to clean it up. It's kind of gross. Right. And so we thought, how great would it be if you could just make diapers mm-hmm. and they could just put it on the dog yeah. and then just throw it away at the end. So I looked into this quite a bit and um, it it had a lot of logistical challenges. I mean, um. all these dogs, unlike like Human babies, that the diapers only come in a couple of sizes. Right. Human babies are like within a narrow range of like pelvic size. Yeah. But dogs, even though it's like one category dog, there's a huge variety right. of sizes That's and shapes right. in terms of dogs. Mm-hmm. Right. So you had like dogs with like tiny butts and then dogs with like really <laughs> weirdly shaped pelvic sizes. Right. And so the sheer variety of models you needed to have was hard. I see. And also doing it in Manhattan is hard because... Most places you go in the world, people just keep one of a couple of types of dogs or two or three types of dogs are common. Mm-hmm. But in Manhattan, because you have so much racial and ethnic diversity and people from all over the world, you have like an incredible range of dog butts <laughs> in, in Manhattan. So right. that was complicated. The intellectual property threshold was very low. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you made any money, everybody else would just come and copy it. You couldn't really do that much about it. I see. 
Um, so I had all these dreams of having like becoming a dog diaper king and putting like my face <laughs> and Steve Covey's face on the back, with, like you know smiling or whatever. But it just it just became too complicated. But even yeah. to this day, you know, when I actually see dogs, I actually am very interested in their pelvis and sort of <laughs> what it would be like to put my diaper on it. But anyway, <laughs> well, to this day, it doesn't exist. Actually, I have seen it. Uh, in a few different places. Oh, I think have. in Korea you can actually buy it. Interesting. Yeah. But a lot of people don't really buy it. I'm not sure why. So. I see. They probably don't know like how to use it yeah. or <laughs> probably don't know it exists, right? Yeah. You should yeah. probably delete this part of the interview so that I can <laughs> keep this a trade secret and then eventually after I retire from a law firm I'll go back to my dream. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, Steve Cobra and you are colleagues at Department of Justice working as prosecutors, right? Yeah. And while you were working on these very complicated legal cases, you were talking about creating diapers for dogs? Um, yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> among other things, and eventually uh, we settled on a law firm. I see. Because we figured just stick with what you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you could have had a very comfortable life, you know, continue to work at the Department of Justice. Prior to that, you were an associate at a very big law firm. So why did you decide to start a law firm? Um, so I think part of it is uh, the particular U.S. Attorney's Office I was in, most people leave after three to six years. Ah, uh, got it. And they go back to large firms. So maybe another way for me to think about the issue is why didn't I go to a large firm afterwards, um, like most of my colleagues? And I think it's uh, that I had a really deep interest in business, mm -hmm. and I really wanted uh, just the excitement of seeing if my business ideas would work out. Mm -hmm. um, and I figured I was only like 31 at the time, so I figured... Even if I basically uh, went bankrupt, it wouldn't be that bad because I would still have the rest of my life to make all the money back. Right. So I took a second mortgage on my house wow. to start it. It actually only cost $50,000 to start it, but I didn't actually have it. So Wow. So you borrowed $50,000. Right. And Steve wow. Cobry got $50,000, and that, that was the beginning of the firm. Wow. Um, and, you know, I think, um, I guess uh, if you define, if you've never seen or heard of any kind of actual real hardship. Not that I've actually experienced that much hardship myself, but I think depending on your frame of reference, if you think taking a second mortgage, investing in a business when you're 31 and then it not working out is like the worst possible thing in your life, and then you know, you're kind of off track or whatever it is that you convince yourself is uh, gonna happen to you, then I think it's, it must be very intimidating to think, well, what if I fail, you know, I'm gonna ruin my life, or however dramatically you can think about it. But if you change your frame of reference and you think, like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? Is that I was going to lose my $50,000 and maybe file personal bankruptcy? But that was unlikely, too. I could just go get a job somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think the real fear, the real concern in that scenario is, realistically, the bad worst-case scenario was not bad. Mm -hmm. It's more that most people who work really hard, uh, and especially people who are children of immigrants of places like Korea that value institutional credentials and right. pedigree, et cetera. The fear isn't so much like, oh, it's not going to work out and I'll be you know, like homeless or whatever. That's not going to happen. It's more you think you're supposed to walk a path of exceedingly greater achievement That's right. as defined by the next thing you're supposed to want. Mm -hmm. And you're afraid that if you fall off of it, that A, you won't be able to get back on it. And B, you never really knew what you wanted anyway. So now right. you're sort of in this category of people who are aimless that you're afraid of where you're going to end up. So I think it was if you don't have clear goals of what you want in your life, it doesn't have to be some grandiose goal. It could be like you want to 
be able to do X a year from now. You want to have uh, a certain situation, you know, three years from now or whatever it is. Unless you have goals like that, mm-hmm. I think you end up just adopting other people's definition of what you, their, your goal should be. And you also become extremely risk averse because your downside becomes not just, you know, what the downside I described, which most people could tolerate, you, you know, lose your investment and then you can just go get some job, maybe not as good of a job as you, if you'd never done it, but then you can work your way back up. But you, it just becomes all this psychological pressure of what if I fall off the track? I don't even know what I want and I'm going to be in this category of people who are not successful and off track and then I don't know what's going to happen to me. So I think lack of goals really creates risk adversity, which then in, in turn creates the inability to pursue your goals. It's like a terrible, vicious cycle that yeah. most people, I would say, don't even realize is actually happening to them. That's right. And especially as, you know, as a kid of immigrant who parents, I'm sure, worked really hard to provide for you. And especially surrounded by so many lawyers who are risk averse, <laughs> they, right. they are lawyers because they, you know, they're afraid to take a risk. Yeah. Um, how did your family and friends react when you said, I'm going to leave this job and go become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so they were happy about me leaving the government because I wasn't ah, making any money. I see. <laughs> but I think the, the big shock was that I wouldn't go to a big Wall Street law firm. Right. Um, and I would say my parents reacted the same way they always react, which is uh, they're just generally pretty mellow and happy yeah. with what I do. Um, I would say the most interesting thing was I went and talked to significant number of people I respect I who were more experienced lawyers and asked them their opinion. Mm. And I would say 99% of them told me it was a terrible idea <laughs> really? that I would end up doing stupid little cases the rest of my life and throwing away everything I worked so hard to achieve. Like wow. the Harvard credentials, being at a big Wall Street law firm, being at a U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, which was a great credential, that all that this is the moment you're supposed to be paid off. You're supposed to get the reward for all that hard work, and now you're going to throw it all away and end up in the same situation as somebody who you know, went to a, a third-rate school, who didn't really work, that, that type of thing that ends up preying on people's insecurities if you never had a goal in the first place right. and you're defined by your credentials. Right. I heard from virtually everybody. So why did you still do it? Uh, because I think, they're, I think they're, they all meant well, uh, but I think... Um, they really didn't know. None of them really knew what would happen. Ne- neither did I. It, ne- they've never done it before, right? Right, and neither did I. Yeah. So it wasn't like they were able to predict what was going to happen. Right. And again, it was ba- it's basically like, what do you really want? It's goal clarity. Being yeah. honest with yourself about what's most important to you. Right. And for me, it was, I actually had a lot of faith that the business could work. Mm-hmm. And even if it didn't, I actually think, I wasn't really that afraid of the downside. Mm. I knew that if I never tried it, that um, this would nag at me. Right. And this was the right time to try it. So based on my goals, it was really the only thing to do. Wow. When a lot of other people tell us that you can't do it, you know, it's not going to work out for you. It's often that they're projecting their own insecurities on us. And maybe if they were us, they wouldn't try it, but they are not us. So we, they wouldn't know until we try. We don't even know until we try, right? Yeah. And yeah. many people want to rationalize why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty rare they'll say, well, I think I made the wrong choices. I think you should, I, I wish I did what you're doing. Pretty I rare see. that happens. Right. And I would say the other phenomenon that happens is that um, if you're 
somebody who again gets your goals defined by other people, mm. even unbeknownst to you. Mm. Then, if a lot of people say something is a bad idea, it may be that if you understand their reason and you're persuaded by it, you agree with it. But if it's just that they're concluding it's a bad idea and pushing their opinion on you, you can become very afraid of it because you think, oh, I only feel validation if I'm doing something that people have said is good or right. Or, or right. But I, I have kind of a personality where if I am trying to do something where I think it's innovative and I'm going to you know, get something out of it, money, uh, freedom, whatever, and the more people that say, I've never thought about it or that sounds weird or are skeptical about it, the more I'm convinced that it's either really dumb or brilliant. It's one of the two. <laughs> Interesting. Right? I figure if I try enough of those things, yeah. by luck, I'll end up with some brilliant. You only need one or two brilliant That's to right. really change the course of your life. Yeah. Right? So I think by definition, you know, if most people either don't understand it or are skeptical about it, that's really where opportunity lies. You know, nobody got wealthy doing the safest thing at every turn. Right. If you look at every single person who ever achieved anything unusual, mm-hmm. uh, they ended up doing something that most people either were skeptical about or hadn't thought about. Right. So what you've just described is the spirit of entrepreneurship, right? Yet being a lawyer is very different from being an entrepreneur, right? A lot of lawyers don't like to take a risk. So practicing law and being an entrepreneur and running your own business is very different. And you've never done this before. This was your first time. So how did you know what to do? I didn't, actually. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm still really learning. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, and because the business keeps evolving, the industry keeps evolving. Mm-hmm. Now, Steve Corbett and I are constantly um, amazed at how many things we don't know and how challenging it is yeah. to do this. I heard when you um, first started out, Steve, and you sat down and you wrote down your goals and aspirations um, and visions for yeah. the firm, and then you compared notes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, so yeah. I think the, one of the reasons we've had such a great business partnership is, like me, he's very uh, straightforward I with see. himself about what he wants and what he's willing to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing is that, you know, the, the list wasn't just like, oh, we want to be wealthy or we want to be respected. That's too vague. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, if people wrote that down, everyone's definition of it is different. That's the problem. Right. We're very specific, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it was basically like what we were willing to do. I think, you know, we were willing to sacrifice everything. Now, one of the yeah. things we both agreed on that we had actually on our list is when we start this business, if not a single person called us for two years wow. with any business whatsoever, <laughs> we would shake hands. We just run out of money, so we'd have to stop the business at right. that point. But we'd shake hands and we'd part as friends, and we would never say a negative word to each other the entire two years or thereafter about the venture. Wow. And we were prepared to do that, the wow. psychological. And we believed it. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I think, clarity like that. Mm. about, And then also, I think, you know, if you have a goal... It's good to have clear goals, but I think it's really important to do two other things to achieve goals. Mm-hmm. First, well, first, I think when you say goal, it can't be vague and abstract. It's got to be very, very concrete, as specific mm-hmm. as you can make it. Like, mm-hmm. if, you, if it's weight loss, it's not, I want to be lighter. It's, I want to be X number of pounds, right? I see. Or if it's weight lifting, it can't be like, I want to be stronger. It's going to be, I want to bench press X number of pounds, right. right? So the goal has to be as concrete as possible so you can reverse engineer both what it takes what you have to do to get it and milestones of 
to actually get there, you have to progress at a certain rate. You have to hit certain milestones. Otherwise, you're not going to achieve it during that time. And a goal, by definition, has to have a time limit. That's right. Otherwise, it's, it's just a hope, not an actual goal, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think what was helpful for us is not only did we have a goal with specific amounts of money and uh, innovation, et cetera, but the two other things, I think, is first, when you, we had the same milestones. We needed to achieve certain things or we'd be... Um, we knew that we weren't progressing towards it. And I think when you set a goal, you have to basically discipline yourself. If the goal's three years away, you're not going to be able to discipline yourself. It has to be, if you want to be able to run a four-minute mile three, three months from now, you have to be at a certain speed a month from now. Otherwise, yeah. you're not going to achieve your goal. Right? I see. And then the second thing, which I think is the most important, which gets overlooked, is clarity about what you are willing to do. Ah, got it. Not Deep just down. what you want. Right. Not just mm-hmm. what you want, but... How much are you willing to sacrifice other things to achieve your goal? I see. And I think um, it's important to be clear with yourself about what you're – everyone has limitations about what they're willing to do. Right. You can't say I'm willing to do anything to achieve your goal Mm because I've never met anybody for whom that's actually true. Right. So you have to understand and articulate to yourself, I'm willing to do up to this point but not beyond. Mm. And then you have to honestly ask yourself – is that actually going to achieve your goal? Then you either have to lower your goal or increase your effort. But the two have to match up. Yeah, so yeah. for us, you know, we were determined to not just start a, a law firm or a law practice that would mimic others, which we knew could be done at right. a certain level. But we wanted to create something really innovative and really new. And we knew that there's a chance that we were totally wrong and we'd never be able to do it. And we may not have any of the innovative business we wanted. That's why we said to each other, I am prepared to literally think about that psychologically <laughs> for two years, not having an income, spending money every day, and literally not a human, single human being calls you. Wow. Uh, but and you like we're, thought of this in advance. <laughs> yes. And we were prepared to do it. Wow. So that's why I think when we were trying to, you know, we'd go into sales pitches and people would, most people you're pitching in a, in a legal setting mm-hmm. are in large institutions or they right. themselves are very credentialed. Yeah. So they look down on anything that's not like them. Yeah. Because I fundamentally, a lot of those people have been protected in large institutions and don't, haven't really seen how money's made and how things actually work, like the deep guts of it. Right. They kind of go into these big offices where there's an institution already operating and they do a certain job and money magically appears in their account. So there's a certain um, disdain they have for people that they regard as kind of below them, meaning smaller institutions, right. not having that type of credential. So... Our experience largely until you know, many years later was constantly to go into sales pitches and be uh, really uh, treated with total disdain. Wow. Right? Um, or basically uh, sneer that. But right? you're but, this Harvard grad who worked at this prestigious law firm, worked at the DOJ, and how was that like for you? <laughs> uh, well, I think, again, it's uh, if you are confused about what your goal is, Mm. then I think I would have felt really bad because if my goal was to feel respected by other people Uh, for credentials, it would have made me feel bad. But because I was in there prepared to literally not have a single person call for two years and spend (laughs) all my money and go into bankruptcy, um, it actually just didn't affect me at all. Mm. Uh, I figured that, you know, if I did 50 of these pitches and one became an actual case, I'm, I'm actually above where I was prepared to be anyway. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it's like having uh, the worst expectation of what could possibly happen kind of mentally prepared you to be strong right. and tough. But were there moments when you were like 
a little bit anxious and worried. Like, what if it doesn't work out? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I was always anxious and worried, but not so much like if it doesn't work out because we were prepared for that. Right. Um, really, more anxious and worried that once we made a commitment to do a certain job for somebody, that we actually would deliver and make that person happy. I see. Um, because I think that was key to continuing to actually succeed. Yeah. So that's really what I get more anxious about in terms of everything working out so that the client's happy and um, or my employees happy everyone gets out of interacting with me what they thought they were going to get out of that interaction yeah. that's what made me anxious i mean i wasn't really afraid of it not working out yeah do you think that your um very entrepreneurial spirit and the willingness to take a risk does where do you think that comes from so i actually don't think i'm that uh, entrepreneurial in the sense that law is actually a very easy business to get into really meaning it has very little capital investment think about um, it like you can start a business with fifty thousand dollars that's true you start any kind of halfway you know sizable restaurant it's gonna cost multiples of that that's true so um you know i think the reason people keep praising me and steve for Kobe for being you know entrepreneurial etc is because most people who say that are themselves in law so <laughs> that's they, right they're, they're, they're like <laughs> pathologically Can't risk averse. Right? Right, right. So I, we never really think we took really that much risk. Mm, um, interesting. So when you first started out, I heard that you were working at Steve's home yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah we, with our uh, home computers. <laughs> I see, I see. Well, how, was, how was that like? <laughs> um, so it's actually not that stressful because yeah. uh, you had no expenses. Right. Um, the firm uh, office, the firm number was actually his home phone <laughs> it actually was his kitchen phone right uh, he actually only had one line but we actually had a, a phone like on the wall in his kitchen you know like those mm-hmm. old phones oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh the, on top of it you know his wife was working and he had a newborn baby oh wow and no person to take care of the baby for periods of time <laughs> so we were actually taking care of this newborn baby baby and uh and then sometimes people did call thinking it was a law firm. Right. And there was a baby crying in the background <laughs> oh, that one of us was trying to keep quiet. It's actually pretty comical. <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm watching like a movie, you know? <laughs> I can kind of like see what you've just described. Yeah. Well, and then I think one of our first cases, the client wanted to have both of us come to a meeting in an office building. Oh. And uh, we couldn't both go because somebody needed to, to see have the right, baby. Right, right. <laughs> so we switched off, actually. <laughs> And one was with the baby while the other one was at the meeting and then we switched off in the middle. It was pretty comical. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's so funny. So how did you get the first client? I hope you got a client within less than two years. Oh, yeah. No, I, there was a really um, a, a, a lawyer from my old firm, Davis Polk, who had a case with a certain issue that was asset forfeiture, which is we, Steve and I have a specialty in criminal asset forfeiture. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got brought into a case and we really, uh, really loved it. It was a great opportunity. I'm always very thankful to that lawyer. Wow, uh, must have been such an amazing feeling. Yeah, no, we were to, very excited to wow. actually have a client <laughs> and all that. <laughs> so 15 years later now, um, you have multiple offices all across the world, I think 10 different locations, um, 300 and more employees. Um, what are the biggest challenges now of running an international law firm? Um, so I think that all there are so many challenges, but it can all be really summarized in, in one sentence, which is nobody would have actually hired me to do this job. In other words, because I founded it, the firm grew around me and I'm co-CEO. Mm. But if this business were to shop for a CEO, I probably wouldn't be the person that gets hired. 
<laughs> so then what happens is you end up constantly facing all these issues that you don't really know how to solve. I see. Commercial issues mm. or personnel issues. And so uh, what we've tried to do is to really try and bring in really outstanding senior people into the firm that are professional managers. So our chief strategy officer is a former McKinsey partner uh, who specializes in professional services, plan out our strategy and our business development. Um, our top finance person is the former uh, chief financial officer of KPMG wow. USA. So I, we've really brought on really great people. Our chief operating officer is a former chief operating officer for Europe and Eastern East Coast USA for O'Melveny and Myers, very large law firm. So having these uh, really talented senior people have really helped, and yet um, they're not the actual CEO. So Steve Corbury and I are the co-CEOs. Ultimately, a lot of these things are judgment calls, even yeah. with all this technical help. And I find that very challenging. Everything from you know, financial planning issues to um, what markets to expand to, to how to deal with certain types of difficult clients and so forth. Uh, always uh, sort of when I feel like I figured things out, sort of new issues, because the business is, itself keeps evolving and the industry keeps evolving. Yeah. What are the, uh, some of the most rewarding or some of the things that you enjoy the most about what you do now being an entrepreneur running this international law firm? Um, so I think the single most rewarding thing is I get to do pretty much what I want almost right. all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. so even, even though obviously like large chunks of my day, there are things I have to do. It's still what I want because I put myself in that position. Right. Nobody forced me to do it. Right. Okay. So um, what that means is I love international travel. So I pretty much can go where I want. Um, I like litigation. I, I like fraud and insolvency and um, litigation that are international cases involving fraud and misconduct. So I get to work on that all the time. I uh, used to uh, do a lot of work in Europe and UK, but now I do a lot of my work in Asia. And I love being in Korea where I spend a lot of my time. So I think it's the freedom to really do what I want and be able to um, change what I do depending on what my interest is in a given month. Mm -hmm. That's really the, the most rewarding aspect of it. Wow. And I heard that um, when you open up new offices, you opened in locations where you want to visit. Yeah, exactly. That's, right. <laughs> That's amazing. So before I ask you the next question, I, I want to share with you a very memorable experience I've had with you. Um, several years ago, I think I met you at a lawyer's conference. Yeah. And then prior to that, we had met, um, I think maybe uh, four years before that. Right. Um, and when we met again at the conference, you not only remember my name, but you knew exactly who I was, what I did exactly. And I remember being so impressed and so shocked. You know, we, in this day and age, we meet so many people all the time. And I was like, wow, this person actually remembers my name and what I do. And then the next day you email me to follow up, I think using a business card I had given you four years ago. <laughs> and I was so impressed. I actually wrote about this experience I'd had with you um, that I wrote um, in an article I wrote about relationship building and networking for Korean media, and it completely went viral. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So my question is, you must meet so many people all the time. How do you remember people, and how do you maintain and grow relationships? Yeah, so I, I certainly don't remember everybody, but <laughs> um, I think uh, the wrong approach toward networking is trying to just collect a lot of business cards. Right. And... Uh, thinking you're networking because you're just meeting a lot of people superficially. That's right. And then constantly thinking about what you want from them. Constantly thinking you're going to go ask people for help or right. for handouts, right? Um, 
I think that's the vast majority of people's definition of networking. I think the word itself kind of connotes a kind of um, lack of genuine feeling about yeah, the situation. Yeah, I don't like the word right. networking either. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's you have to examine like what are you actually trying to accomplish? Like why are you spending time with people who are not your family or closest of friends? For what purpose? Okay. And obviously, you know, as in any human relationship of any kind, there's some mutual benefit involved. Right. Uh, even if it's you know emotional as opposed to monetary. Um, but leaving that, I think trying to articulate, well, why are you meeting new people? Mm. And I think it's for people you meet that you feel you have no commonality with in terms of shared interests or you're in you know, no shared kind of future situation where you might collaborate together or help each other. I don't blame people for not really remembering them and not really um, following up with them or keeping track of them. But if you're doing networking with the goal of trying to meet people that you can either learn new things from or you can collaborate with or thinking in some future situation there may be an opportunity to help each other or to learn from each other, um, I think then you become actually really interested in those people. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like you have to go and try and like be best friends with everybody and learn everything about each person. But if there's something interesting about a person, either about what they do or ideas they have, uh, I just try to, I actually become interested in it. And I also think like, well, if there's something that they need out of life in terms of either ideas or connections, et cetera, that I can help with, that actually creates that commonality that really is the basis for eventually it can be a friendship, it can be a good professional acquaintanceship, et cetera. So I think you really have to enjoy it. I see. I uh, really have to enjoy kind of creating these new connections. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think for people who don't really enjoy it and they regard it really as a kind of like an artificial exercise of pretending to like people you really don't, right. I don't blame them for not wanting to do it because yeah. who wants to be pretending all the time? Right, exactly. Right? So it has to be sincere. Has to, there has to be a genuine interest in getting to know a person and developing that relationship because you can't be faking it all the time, right? Yeah, and I <laughs> yeah. think uh, also, you know, if the, every hour you spend with somebody you don't actually like is, uh, takes away from your happiness, obviously, because nobody would point. actually have a goal of spending time with people they don't like by definition right? <laughs> right so if your goal is whatever your goal is if it's to get what you want which is the very definition of goal seeking right mm -hmm. then you know it may be that you end up having to spend time with people you don't like to get certain other goals uh. but in terms of networking there's so many people in the world there's no reason you should be networking with people you don't like that's right okay? so even if you know you have to uh, be in an uncomfortable situation with people you don't know, there's some subset of people that you actually w will like or have some commonality with. That's right. So, um, you know, when uh, several years ago, uh, so every year I try to like come up with new rules for how I conduct my everyday really? uh, life. And one of my rules I came up with several years ago was I will not have dinner or a weekend meal with somebody unless I actually really like them. <laughs> That does have to be, they don't have to be like a close friend, but yeah. if it's a purely commercial interaction, mm -hmm. then it'll be a weekday lunch or a weekday breakfast. I think this has made a huge impact on my perception of my own happiness because wow. this means on weekends or every evening, uh, if I'm going to have a meal with somebody, I actually look forward to it because there's That's some great. element of it I'm actually enjoying. Yeah. How did you come up with this? rule <laughs> I think it's it's important to always be honest with yourself about 
uh, everything in your life. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I realized I was having dinner with a lot of commercial contacts because I just didn't have enough time in my day. Mm. And um, and then I was thinking, well, what am I actually getting out of in terms of commercial yield versus the amount of impingement on my personal time that represented? And is that a worthwhile trade-off? Right, I see. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I realized that I was paying too high of a price uh, for those dinners and weekend meals. I see, got it. So this is your rule for this year? Uh, just from then on, it was I think it was age 40 I imposed that rule. Wow. So for the last eight years. Are I've, there uh, any other rules you could share with us? I have uh, numerous, I think <laughs> I would say. Uh, I, uh, I basically uh, work out every day unless... Uh, it's I'm either sick or it's impossible because of travel. Wow. Um, so usually that ends up being anywhere between four to six times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually just make it like brushing my teeth. Like it just needs, it just will get done. Wow. And Do you no, work out in the morning? Um, so I've I've actually found that over time that I w- work out best in late morning. And this is part of mm. how goal seeking, it's all like a, uh, a, a system where it can all support itself. Yeah. Meaning... The more freedom I've gotten in my life, mm. there are very few. Uh, the easier it is to pursue all my other goals. That's so, right. Well, I'm actually extremely busy. I, I work probably sixty to eighty hours a week, easily. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation I've created on purpose is I don't necessarily have to be at a place at a certain time unless I put myself in that situation. That's right. So mm-hmm. I deliberately create a situation where around like eleven a.m. to 1, 2 p.m. I can I can basically do whatever I want. I don't mm-hmm. have to be anywhere. And I really enjoy working out around that time. So that's what, how I've structured myself everywhere I go. So I usually go to London or Seoul uh, or New York, besides New York. And I, each place, I kind of have a whole structure. I have a gym. I, have a, I create that time for myself. And I think these little things add up a lot to give you that sense of control and happiness. Yeah. And I think, um, especially if you're Korean, mm-hmm. where... Uh, unlike, let's say, if you're Latino, where you kind of intuitively know how to make yourself happy. If you're Korean, I think you have to actually consciously figure out how to make yourself happy every day <laughs> by true. structuring yourself in this right, way. Right, right. I think a lot of Koreans have a hard time figuring out what makes us happy. It has, probably has a lot to do with cultural aspects of things or parental or societal expectations. Yeah, that's right. Just like social skills, I think making yourself happy and understanding what makes you happy and unhappy is actually a learned skill. How do you understand what makes you happy? Um, I think, again, it's just sort of being honest with yourself. So Mm. I think part of the problem, another impediment to happiness, I think, is if you try to fit into another person's ideal, including societal ideals. So true. So I'd say every one of us regards ourselves as a good person. Yeah. So, and they regard their life as almost like a drama where they're the protagonist. So they're like the good person. Nobody mm-hmm. thinks I'm the villain in right. the drama, right? <laughs> right? Or I'm a bit player that nobody cares about. Mm-hmm. So once you conceive of yourself as a good person, there are all these ideals that you think you're supposed to live up to. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to do certain things, not do certain things. And then you spend most of your time, especially if you're Korean, feeling guilty you can't live up to those ideals. That's right. Because they're ideals because almost nobody can actually achieve them. Right. That's why they're ideals. <laughs> right. So I think one of the great things about kind of getting older and having the self-awareness is I actually don't try to achieve a lot of ideals. Huh. So if it's something where I'm really excited about and I really want to do it, I'll do it. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, it's there are people who... Uh, feel guilty that they are not, say, doing more 
for charity. There are people who are feeling guilty. They're not doing more for friends, etc. Um, I basically think, well, there's a certain limit that I've imposed about what I'm, how much I'm willing to do for charity or for my friends. Um, and then beyond it, uh, I actually don't feel guilty about it at all mm. because I know I have to put certain limits because I have a finite amount of time and money. Right. right? So am I the best person I could be? Uh, no, but I actually, that's not one of my goals to be the best person I can be. Yeah. I think once you accept all your own flaws, mm. once you accept sort of all the um, parts of your personality that are not ideal, right. I, I think you can actually live really harmoniously with yourself. I think being nice to yourself and accepting yourself is actually really hard for Koreans too. It's very, very hard. Yeah. So how did you figure that out? Because you've lived a, a path of, you know, good school and good job and good profession. And it's could have been just easy to continuing on that road. But yet you constantly, you know, were reflecting back, learning more about yourself. Uh, well, I think... Uh, especially for all the young people listening to this. Yeah. A lot of things in life, uh, to get them, you actually do have to incur a lot of unhappiness up front. Uh, so um, it. it wasn't like in my 20s, I was just running around doing whatever the hell I wanted. Or <laughs> right. Going, going to work out at 11 a.m. for three hours. Yeah. But um, I knew that there were certain things I needed to do to try and get uh, to where I want to be. I think the, I think many people have that quality. I think the problem is, a lot of people, especially immigrants, feel that just simply working hard yeah. and, and sacrificing themselves to some institution mm-hmm. is actually going to somehow yield rewards. Right. Again, that's also kind of giving up on controlling your own life because you're just thinking, well, if I put a lot of time and energy into this institution, somehow they'll figure out what makes me happy and give it to me. That's right. right? I think that's how a lot of us think, right? Yes. So I think if you're sacrificing, you have to sacrifice smart as opposed to to sacrifice with blind faith that other people will figure th- figure out that you sacrifice and somehow pay you back. Yeah. How did she know at such an early age that that's not how you want to live, you know? Just go work for some big institution and have them figure it out for me. Because I think most of us don't even think about it and we just do it because that's what everybody else does around yeah. us. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I actually really uh, love kind of deconstructing people and myself yeah. and value systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Uh, uh, one of the interesting things about college was really opened my eyes to, for example, I was a what's called a social studies major at Harvard, which ah. it sounds kind of like you're reading maps and learning, <laughs> memorizing like capital cities, but it's actually a really interesting field where you try to understand like why are value systems a certain way? Mm. You know, why is it considered good in one society for there to be a huge, uh, let's say, age difference between a man and a woman? Yeah. Either way, right? right. And then why is it in another society, it's considered really bad yeah. or shameful, right? right? And trying to deconstruct why values arise, mm. there's usually an underlying necessity that created a value, but then even after the necessity disappears, the values perpetuate themselves. I see. And so there's always a lag between the value system and necessity. That's right. So once you kind of see how it's put together, you are able to let go of just blind belief or value systems and see how things are constructed and kind of construct your own value system to pursue what you want yeah wow that's this is fascinating <laughs> i wish we could go on and on yeah. and on but there's more questions i want to yeah. ask you so you described a little bit about how you were able to create your own schedule and um, you usually work out late morning so what does your typical day look like if there is a typical day yeah it's uh, my days are generally similar in terms of schedule wherever i am in the world mm-hmm. so i usually wake up uh, anywhere between 4 and 5 a.m uh, wherever i am 
Right, you don't sleep very much. Yeah, I don't sleep that much. Since you're very young. Yeah, right? although the older I'm getting, I'm, I'm starting to sleep <laughs> How more. How many hours of sleep do you get every night? Uh, now it depends on the night, but usually four or five hours. But wow. when I was younger, I would sleep maybe two, three hours a night. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Uh, wow. Pretty regularly. Okay, so you wake up at four or five. Yeah, and then um, I uh, pretty much uh, uh, look at my emails immediately because mm-hmm. the problem is that the business runs 24 hours a day. There's actually no time when Cobring is actually closed. That's right. So um, there's always something happening. So no matter when it is, when I wake up, there are issues that I have to deal with. Now, luckily, because the place is larger and there are more people, usually nothing urgent mm-hmm. in the sense of it's not like everybody was waiting for me, but I do have to weigh in and just monitor things. So I end up working usually an hour or two, uh, catching up on emails and things of that sort. And then... Um, I uh, usually just take like a 30-minute break to go eat breakfast um, and then uh, and work some more, really. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, then I go work out. And then in the afternoon, I usually reserve for like actual meetings with clients or internal meetings and so forth. And then I try to have dinner with somebody I like. So that's my routine pretty much everywhere I am. Wow. Yeah. Do you think, um, is there a habit or something you do regu- regularly that you think contributed to your success? Um, so it's going to sound really mundane, but I think it's uh, I keep really detailed lists of all the things that I, I need to do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything from working out yeah. to, uh, you know, once a week, I actually um, uh, watch Spanish drama. Interesting. Yeah, I actually That's enjoy on it. your to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to-do list is not just for work then, like things that you enjoy and things that you want to do for yourself yeah also. Well, everything i do i i enjoy pretty much yeah because yeah. I've, I've cut out things i that really cause me like too much discomfort yeah but uh for example spanish drama i used to speak spanish a lot more when i was doing more latin america work. Ah, got it now not as many opportunities i don't want to really lose the language mm. so i really enjoy watching <laughs> spanish dramas for example right and so i have everything like that to um you know uh I have uh, lists of, you know, once a month, think about these spiritual issues or whatever it is. So I I actually really like having all these lists of what I think I should be doing to make myself happy or to kind of achieve what I want. Also, I um, help my son and my daughter with their uh, homework Mm -hmm. um, pretty much every night, no matter where I am in the world. Wow. So I schedule that in as well. Do you like Skype with them or FaceTime them? Yeah, I FaceTime with them or use Google Drive to edit their essays and things of that (laughs) sort. That's amazing. (laughs) So I really enjoy that too. Yeah. What are some of the things that's on your list that you are doing or want to be doing to make yourself happier? Um, So I would say, um, you know, I... These are all like the examples I gave are more like uh, things to do every week or yeah. that the goal is, you know, if I'm editing, editing my son's essay to get it done by that week, etc. But I have sort of other longer term goals mm-hmm. I try to think about. So I've thought about maybe spending more time in Latin America eventually, ah, I see. which is why that the Spanish drama is part of a right. long term right. uh, workflow to try and achieve that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I've also considered briefly whether at some point if I leave the legal profession ah. what I might want to do yeah um, and so I have a bunch of very interesting ideas everything from incredibly mundane right. to completely insane mm-hmm. and I think of like what I might want to do to try and put myself in a position to be able to move to one of these models yeah so I have a 
uh, at one point I was considering um, whether I might want to, um, after I retire, go to um, Oktoberfest, which I've been to many times, yeah. and actually become a German singer. <laughs> so I actually uh, have been studying Oktoberfest songs. Wow. Not, not that I don't spend that much time in it, but I figure yeah. if that's ever an option, not to do for like my entire retirement, right. but let's say I wanted to do that for three, four years yeah. in like one of those Oktoberfest uh, bands. Mm. Um, I wanted to give myself that optionality. So I have a little German course that I bought, you know, <laughs> and then the German songs, et cetera. And I have studied those from time yeah. to time. So I have a lot of little projects like that that amuse me yeah. that are more long term. That sounds so much fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, most people think that you probably don't have enough time in a day to do just to do the work because you have this amazing international law firm that's essentially running 24 hours as a day but you make time for yourself uh, yeah i think you have projects. to you have to make time to have these long-term projects yeah, because yeah the uh the otherwise if you don't have goals of where you want to end up yeah at specific times in your life right you're gonna basically put it in other people's hands or really nobody's hands it'll That's just right. happen randomly yeah so you've achieved so much what is your new dream or the next dream uh, it's to create more and more freedom for myself. I see. Um, which then will allow me to just fill it with other content, everything from you know spending time with my kids. Mm. Or uh, one thing I thought was, well, maybe after my kids go to college, maybe um, mm. uh, I'll take more trips with them. Mm -hmm. So another kind of project I have is uh, I take a trip with my daughter. Well, I take a lot of trips with my son because he does fencing. I mm. take him everywhere. But I um, take a trip with my daughter once a year. We've been doing it ever since she was six. She's 14 now. Yeah. I've done eight of them. And I plan these father-daughter trips and with you know a lot of thought as to what she might enjoy and what I might enjoy yeah. this is another like little project I have so it's really to fill my life with more content like that yeah and you know I have thought maybe I'll um, do something a little bit more kind of mm -hmm. uh, systematically meaningful than just making myself happy but I haven't really found anything yet <laughs> is there one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger Probably virtually everything, but really, um, I'd say the the most. If I could time travel back and tell my suffering nineteen-year-old self mm -hmm. that was just working all the time and basically stressed out most of the time, yeah, I would say that being happy on a day-to-day -day basis requires conscious effort. Ah. I think some people are just naturally programmed, maybe, but right. I'm not one of those people. Mm. Or if I was, then Korean culture kind of beat it out of me. <laughs> That's so right. So I think. Um, knowing that it actually requires effort. And if you don't put out the effort, mm -hmm. you're actually not gonna be happy or achieve your goals. I think yeah. it's, you know, I always, everybody always knows like, well, if to make money or to be promoted, you have to work hard. Right. So that everybody understands. Right. But I think most people, if they're not achieving their, like their personal goals or they're not happy, mm. they can't really articulate why. Right. They think, oh, it's bad luck or I'm being mistreated mm -hmm. or or worse, they think, oh, I didn't work hard enough at my job, et cetera. When in fact it's, 20, 30 minutes of thinking per day about how you're going to make yourself happy that day, yeah. how you're going to try and work towards your long-term goals, which, again, is another definition of happy. I wish I had understood this back then. It would have saved myself a lot of stress. Yeah. So what are some of the things you do on a daily basis to make yourself happier? We talked about some long-term projects that you're working on, but yeah. every day, is there something you do? Um, yeah. So I, I think over time, I've uh, just learned uh, what gives me uh, with at very little cost of time yeah because i don't actually have a lot of time that's right right to make myself happy mm -hmm. so i know like drinking 
uh, coffee at certain times of the day actually does make me happy. And ah, most people have that in their habit, right. right? Yeah. Um, and then I think um, I actually watch very strange YouTube videos. <laughs> really? Like I, what? I, um, so everything from... Uh, I love videos about like old style Korean restaurants in like regional parts of Korea. Where you grew up. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so there's actually a, a, a series um, called, uh, it's kind of translated as the, um, the food table of Koreans. Ah. Okay? And there's an, an old Korean actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Cheburam. Mm-hmm. Who oh, yeah. narrates it? Yeah, very. Famous. And basically, he roams around the Korean countryside, mm-hmm. visiting people's homes, and then they cook for him. Oh, interesting. Right? <laughs> and I'm, I, I, it makes me really happy to watch like ten minutes of that. Yeah. So I, I, allot myself like little bits of it. Yeah. And I think you know one of my projects is I might want to become Cheburam when I'm old. So that's <laughs> another hedge beyond the Octoberfest singer or yeah. whatever it is. Wow, I feel like there could be like a documentary um, about you and your <laughs> your life and your project. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you know when you were 19 year old, year old you, you were very stressed out working a lot. Um, when was the most difficult time for you? Um, what were some of your failures and struggles that you had to overcome to get to where you're now? Um, so like I said earlier, I actually feel very lucky because I have mm-hmm. uh, really good parents and I never really ended up uh, feeling like materially deprived mm-hmm. um so i'd say and then you know it's the other things like you could say i had hardships like i didn't speak the language i had to learn new language etc a lot of people have faced a lot of similar things like that so yeah. i don't really regard there was any like big issue i mean i feel very lucky i've always been very healthy and at least the way that the educational system defined intelligence when I was growing up, which I think is different from how they define intelligence today. Yeah. But ma- basically mm-hmm. the ability to acquire and remember information and repeat it. Right. I just was born at the right time because I had that skill at the time. Yes. <laughs> so in many ways, I feel like uh, there's, you know, there's a saying in Wall Street that mm-hmm. repeated often that I'd rather be lucky than smart. Yeah. So I feel like I was lucky in a lot of ways. So mm. there's nothing I can point to to say, oh, this is like something I messed up or I feel really bad I didn't have this. But I do think that um, probably the times in my life when I felt kind of emotionally like, oh, wow, like I really messed up or I really didn't do the right thing Mm. was um, times when I regretted not spending enough time with people I really love. Uh, So I think for people who have not really had like a loved one die, they don't really understand what this means. But like when my grandmother died, who was really like a mother to me, I realized like I hadn't spent enough time with her and I'd been so busy with all these things in my life and I knew why you know obviously everyone's got this but yeah that's those are things that like once you realize you made a mistake you can actually never go back and fix it that's right you know if you feel like you ate too much and now you're fat you can get yourself to go on a diet <laughs> right. right or you didn't you were lazy and you kind of you know got a bad grade you can just work harder for the next semester that's right with people that you love that you didn't spend enough time with yeah and then they're either die or they leave your life yeah you, you can never fix it and then yeah. at the end of the, your life, your life is just like an amalgamation of all these moments. That's so right. the mo- more moments like that that you regret that you can't fix, yeah. it, it devalues your entire life in the aggregate. So right. it's a cold way of saying, like, you know, you should spend more time with people you love. Yeah. yeah. But oftentimes we, even though we, when people, you know, are asked what's, what's the most important thing in your life, people usually say family. Yeah. But rarely do we make family a priority because work often takes priority, right? Right. right. So how do you prioritize spending time with the people that you love over 
doing other things like work. Yeah. So I've done two things because mm-hmm. that whole everyone says it's a balance and yeah. you know, it's like a, there's a whole like um, common package of things you're supposed right. to say about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I acknowledge all that it's a balance, your constant struggle and blah blah yeah. blah. But there's actually two things I did to deal with that issue because I knew it wasn't going to go away. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the first is whenever I am able to say be with my kids. Yeah. I try to really carve out intense time with them. Mm-hmm. So instead of just being around them and doing other things, I try to like take a trip with my daughter right. or really spend time talking to them or something like that to make it quality. I think it just takes a little effort, but it doesn't take that much more time. Right. So I do that consciously. And when I'm, say, in New York, I actually don't go to the office unless I actually have to, Yeah. if they're home. Mm. Okay. So that's made a huge difference in what, accumulating. The other thing is just to be honest with yourself about what you are. So whenever you decide to work or go on a business trip rather than be with, let's say, your kid, you're making a conscious decision that something's more important than the other. Uh. Okay. And if you don't understand this about yourself, then you're going to feel guilty constantly about whatever it is you're not doing. So if you're, you know, I think a lot of women especially have the opposite issue, which is they have a successful career, they have all these demands at work, and yet they feel all this responsibility at home. Of course. And then when they're spending time with their kids, everyone around them is trying, acting like, oh, you should be happy, you're being a great mother, but the whole time they're stressed out that there are all these things at work that they're falling behind on. Yeah, guilty everywhere, right? right? That's Mm -hmm. right. And so constantly people are feeling guilty. Yeah. And guilt is a feeling that comes from a mismatch between expectation and reality. That's right. Stress also, right? Yeah. So you have, you have to match these things. And you can only match them by being honest. And I basically decided a long time ago that I'm actually not a person that values my kids above everything else. Mm. That I actually, it's uh, in terms of achieving my personal goals and professional success, there's a degree to which I'm willing to sacrifice my quality as a parent to achieve my other goals. Ah, I and see. once I was honest with myself about this, yeah. and I actually told my kids this too. Yeah, how did they react to that? <laughs> um, I, 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 they've never really known anything else. So they probably think, oh, this is quite normal. Right. But, uh-huh. but it's, I stopped feeling guilty uh, ah, about it. Wow, that's, that's a hard thing to admit, Yeah. right? Yeah. But I guess you had to do that to kind of know yourself better and to be honest you can make decisions that really align with who you are and, okay. so you have yeah. a few choices you can um not admit this to yourself and constantly feel guilty about everything right and probably at any time not do what you really want to do whatever right. that is because probably you don't you don't you don't have a definition so you're constantly changing yeah or you can decide that if you really are someone who values your kids above all else, and I say very rarely to people are people really like that. Right. They like to say it, but deep down, it. if you look at your own behavior, mm-hmm. you're actually not that good. Right? right. But if you really are that, you should actually just sacrifice your job and do a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe you need to get married to somebody you don't really like because they have money. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. That's, that's one way to solve an issue of if you don't want to work right. and you want to be with your kids all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're not willing to do that, then obviously your own happiness, you want to sacrifice some good time with your kids to pursue some other goals you have, like you want to be with somebody you like. So, yeah. you know, the, the, fact, the fact is you can't have it all. Anything you try to get, yeah. you actually have to sacrifice something else. So it's that lack of understanding, again, back to are you willing to do what it takes to get whatever it is you want? Right. So not as much as we say we want to do this, we want to do that, or, or this is important, like how much are we willing to sacrifice or not do something else to achieve what we want? Right? That's right. And but if you describe yourself in some kind of 
laudable way. Like, yeah. oh, I want to be a good father. Let's be honest. Like, is that really the only value you have? <laughs> right. You know. What other and, values are important in your life? Are more important. More actually. important in your life. You、I、can't、see. say it's all important. I want to balance it because、yeah. you know there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, the more something you do, that you're going to do less of something else. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for、yeah. sharing that. I think a lot of people needed to hear it. They're、yeah. probably feeling it, but afraid to admit it. But. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that.、Um, Nobody succeeds alone, and nobody achieves dreams alone. So I want to ask you, who helped you to achieve your dreams? If you can remember a person or two.、Um, so I think、uh, a lot of different people along the way,、mm-hmm. um, but、uh, say probably if I had to choose the three random people, I won't say the top three people because、mm-hmm. then whoever's not included will feel. <laughs> Right. Unhappy. So top、yeah. three,、uh, I'd say random three random people that、right. come to the top of my mind,、yeah. but not in order of significance, and not even the most significant people.、Mm-hmm. Okay,、um, I'd say、uh, the first was my grandmother,、uh. Uh, but not for like the reasons you would expect. Everyone says like, "Oh, my grandmother gave me all these values, whatever."、Mm-hmm. She actually uh, was a、um, uh, very unusual person. She,、uh, I think, even though she grew up in rural Korea,、uh, she.、Uh, I think、uh, from an early age was like quite rebellious,、mm-hmm. and、um, you know, for example, when she was like seventy-five or eighty, even she、uh, watched Michael Jackson videos and learned how to break dance and、really? stuff like that. Yeah, so she's a very unusual、What? person. But a Korean I, grandma.、Yeah. <laughs> so when I was a kid, as most Korean kids, I was raised by my grandma. Yeah,、um, and、uh, I spent a lot of time with her. I think she kind of gave me a worldview that. Where she really didn't respect any traditions and always like thought about new things, even though she was, you know,、uh, from she was born like in 1910 or something crazy, like 1919, wow, some really long time ago. Yeah,、um, at a time when、uh, Korean society really, if you were a woman, especially in a traditional household, they would really just kind of put you in a little box and、Absolutely. tell you you can do this and not that. You're almost、yeah. like a little, you know, plaything for other yeah, people. Yeah. But、uh, yeah, she really just really had her own mind and、mm-hmm. her own way of. Behaving and acting, so、mm-hmm. that really probably gave me, unbeknownst to myself, a real subconscious comfort with not following other people's instructions necessarily. I see. <laughs> so I think I think that was really、um, mm. very helpful. And then I'd say、um, another、uh, sort of person along the way、uh, would be a good friend I had in the army who actually ended up dying in Iraq、oh. uh, in a truck bomb at,、uh, oh, attack. Mm. And、um, I think the reason that he ended up being significant is that you know, until he died, I actually the only people I cared about who had died were old people. Right. So, you know, my grandmother died, and then like my uncle died, and I loved them, but and it affects you a lot, and it causes you to, like I said, re- realize what I told you earlier, which、mm-hmm. is you know re- certain types of regret you can never fix. Right. But When someone old dies, kind of like deep down, you think like, okay, it's supposed to happen at some point. Yeah. Right. Old people are supposed to eventually pass away. Right. But when somebody who's your age or younger、yeah. dies, especially in a, suddenly like that, it really ends up affecting your worldview in the sense that you kind of see life more for what it is. Yeah. Which is,、um, there's really nothing at the end that kind of. Summarizes the whole thing and makes sense. It's really just an accumulation of all these moments that you have. That's right. And for that person, it was just that was the end, right? Yeah. And、uh, and then just seeing how the world just moves on.、Mm. Once he, I mean, obviously his loved ones never forget him and so forth. But 
the world just moves on, right? Yeah. So I think that really ended up kind of allowing me to see more clearly how important it is to have the goal of making yourself happy and so forth. Right? I see. Um, and then I'd say probably uh, in terms of people who helped me, um, I'm always grateful to my fr- the first person who taught me English, was a person yeah. named Mrs. Brown, who was a tutor. <laughs> <laughs> Where she was when you moved to Miami? Uh, she was a she actually taught me a little bit in Costa Rica. Oh, I see. Yeah, I couldn't speak it fluently back mm, then. So but when you were like six or seven. Yeah, yeah, mm, that's right. Um, wow. And uh, she, uh, I think if I, if I had only spoken Spanish at that point, I would have yeah. never really become fluent in English, and it would have really limited my ability to do all kinds of things internationally. That's right. Because I think fundamentally. I mean, one of my great loves is international travel and international work. Yeah. And unless you're fluent in English, it's very hard to achieve. And not impossible, but very hard. Right. And it's one of these things where, as I mentioned earlier, like when you have a certain goal, you have to understand like what it takes to actually achieve that goal. Yeah. And fluence in English would have been, is like an integral part of almost everything that I have now. That's right. And if I... If I hadn't learned it at that early age, it would have been really hard later in life. Did you get a chance to say thank you? Um, No, because I never really found her again. With a name like Mrs. Brown, I'm definitely never going to find her again. It's like going to Korea and looking for Mr. Kim. (laughs) That's right. Well, hope she knows. (laughs) Um, So you have achieved uh, such a tremendous level of success. And I'm sure you know and met a lot of success people around you also. So what have you learned about success that you can share with our listeners? I'd say most people that are look successful by the way the society defines them actually are not successful. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I do litigation. That's right. So I represent, most of the people I represent are um, extremely wealthy That's or right. high, sort of have all the trappings of what society regards as success, like a power over other people, status, money. I can tell you most of them are pretty miserable. I, I mean, I, I see obviously a subset of people who are in litigation, so... Right. I see like the wor- the people in the worst situation. Right. But I can definitely tell you that money and power uh, really have only a small relationship to actual happiness and success. Again, success is really achieving your own goals, not mm-hmm. any any other definition in my mind. Yeah. Um, so I think that the best uh, I guess point about success that I'd want to impart is that you really have to understand the extent to which societal definitions of success and happiness are subconsciously affecting your own definition. That's right. And then unless you unpackage that, believe me, when you're like 50 or 60, it's going to get unpackaged for you. And you're not going to like it because you're you're not going to have control over those aspects of your life that you need to have control over to achieve your own definition. When you, if you're first trying to come up with your definition, when you're, you know, kind of like almost done with your uh, working life, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. So got to really think about that when you're young, right? Yeah. It it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. So my last question to you is what would be your words of advice to the young generation or people in their early uh, early in their careers, trying to kind of figure it all out. Yeah, so um, I think the most common refrain of people who are young is to follow your heart and do what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually when people say that, they define it as short-term happiness. And I think that's a terrible mistake mm-hmm. because one thing that I find interesting is with few exceptions, mm-hmm. If you haven't figured out by age 40 mm-hmm. to 45, 
how you're going to achieve what you want and you haven't set up your own situation, it's actually really hard. Not impossible, but it's really, really hard. Mm. And to set yourself up in whatever situation you want, I'm not necessarily talking about professional success, but whatever it is you're trying to achieve, um, I think requires a fair amount of short-term sacrifice in your 20s and 30s. That's right. So I think being realistic about how much of your conduct is going to be short-term happiness versus smart sacrifice, like I said earlier, not just going and just doing whatever people say and just pouring all your work into some institution that's not going to necessarily do anything for you other than pay your salary, Mm -hmm. but having smart sacrifice and understanding you are going to have to incur uh, cost that's right. Along the way. Mm. No, um, I, think, I think this is really important and for young people to really feel like, you know, to really be happy throughout your entire life and not just pursue dreams. And then it just becomes about um, trying to pres- preserve flexibility becomes a goal in and of itself. I see. Like trying to keep yourself in a state of indecision becomes a goal in and of itself. Mm. Uh, the problem is the state of indecision that might seem like such an attractive goal in your 20s and 30s yeah. actually is rarely attractive to people in their 40s and 50s. That's right. And you're eventually going to get there and you're going to have probably another 20, 30, well, 20, at least 20 years to work, maybe 30 years to work. Yeah, especially because we're going to live till probably like 100 nowadays, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. got to yeah. really work on, you know, figuring out what it is that we want and also learning what we're willing to sacrifice and not sacrifice yeah. right so yeah, well michael right. thank you so much no, this well, has been you. such a pleasure no, i'm so excited to share our conversation with our listeners so thank you <laughs> thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it if you enjoyed the conversation i would be really grateful if you can subscribe and write a review for the podcast it really helps me to spread the word If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can go to selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co and leave me a message there. So thank you again and I'll be back soon with another episode.